The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church 12, David Platt offers a biblical theology of suffering, covering 75 key texts from Genesis to Revelation. The problem of evil and the ever-present reality of pain in a fallen world are addressed from the standpoint of the cross. Whether it's a doctor's diagnosis, persecution from government, or a personal struggle with loneliness and depression, followers of Christ can rely on the sovereignty and goodness of God. He sustains us through every form of suffering with the hope of the gospel. For the Secret Church 12 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit radical.net slash sc12. This is Secret Church 11, episode 1. So obviously we've got a lot of ground to cover. I cho- hope you've chosen wisely and who you're sitting next to tonight because you will need them to help you with your notes, to help you stay awake. Some of you, sometimes people ask, well, why do you, why do you cover so much? Remember the whole premise behind Secret Church. When I've been in underground house churches around the world and they've gathered together in a secret location at the risk of their lives, they want to make the most of that time. They can process truth, think through truth, meditate on truth later. They want the word Especially if they don't have the word. So that's what I want to do. I want to give you as much word as possible tonight. Let's drink from the fire hydrant of inspired scripture so that you can process it in the days to come. So you can have as much word as possible to go into your communities and the nations and tell them how the cross of Christ is the only hope for a world mired in suffering. So let the fire hydrant begin. The Bible is honest about suffering from cover to cover. Habakkuk 1, 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry to you violence and you will not save. We're going to look at that text more later. So we'll go ahead and move on. John Stott said the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. This is huge. Consider the world around us where suffering is a global reality. We live in a world full of natural evil. I'm talking about evil. When I say natural evil, that is evil that's not necessarily or directly caused by someone's individual sin. I'm talking about diseases. Almost 50,000 people contracted HIV last week alone. Approximately 40,000 others died of AIDS last week. This next statistic is specifically from the United States National Cancer Institute. In the next year, over 1.5 million people will be diagnosed with cancer. Over 500,000 people will die of cancer. Based on current trends, almost 50% of men and women born today will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lifetime. So let that just soak in. You are the person next to you. Likelihood is. Getting cancer at some point. Diseases. Disasters. You think about the last five to ten years, hundreds of thousands of people have died instantly in earthquakes in Haiti and China and cyclone in Myanmar, tsunami in Southeast Asia. Those are random events. You put on top of that ongoing natural disasters. Over 13 million people are currently suffering amid famine and food shortages, specifically in the Horn of Africa, which we're focusing on tonight. Hundreds of thousands of people tonight who were on the brink of starvation. Diseases, disasters, and death. Approximately 25,000 children under the age of five, five die every day due to poverty. That's over 9 million children every year dying because of poverty. Almost 40% of those children died during the first month of their lives. 
That's children in poverty. Then more generally, over 150,000 people die every day in the world. That's over 60 million people who will die this year. Piper put it in perspective. He said 100 people are dying every minute. If you could hear them all, you'd hear so many screams, you'd go insane. Only God can hear them all and not go insane. God parcels out our awareness in small amounts lest we go under. How can you live in a world like that as a loving person and rejoice in the Lord? That's a huge question. We live in a world full of natural evil and a world full of moral evil. A world full of slavery and abortion, beatings and murders, robberies and riots, torture and rape, discrimination and persecution. Which is obviously part of the point of our gathering tonight to remind ourselves that persecution is real for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. A world full of war and terrorism, violence and genocide. Based on all this, it is easy to conclude that suffering is a universal experience. All people experience suffering. All people everywhere in the world. And obviously included in that, all Christians undergo suffering. The Christian is not immune to suffering. Now there's some theology circulating today that if you follow Jesus, you will experience, you'll experience prosperity, not suffering. And one of my goals tonight is just to blow that theology right out of the water. It's not true. All Christians undergo suffering. Now this is where I want to, I want to go ahead and explain something here. When I talk about suffering in the Christian's life tonight, I'm going to include under that one banner all types of suffering. So sometimes Christians suffer in the same ways that non-Christians suffer. Christians and non-Christians get cancer, right? There's some suffering that is universal. At the same time, there's some suffering that is uniquely Christian. I'm talking about Christians who suffer because of faith in Christ. Because of proclamation of Christ. Christians persecuted because of allegiance to Christ. And while these, those types of suffering are definitely different in some respects, I'm going to treat them both generally under the same umbrella. And the reason I'm going to do that is because Satan's design and God's design in both types of suffering is the same. Satan intends every type of suffering to sabotage us. Satan intends cancer and persecution to sabotage us. On the other hand, God intends every type of suffering to sanctify us. God intends cancer and persecution to sanctify us. And so there's different types of suffering that we experience as Christians, which we're going to talk about. But I'm going to treat them all under one banner of suffering that God intends for our sanctification and Satan intends for our destruction. Suffering is a universal experience, but it's not just broad. Suffering is a personal struggle. Not just for the whole human race, but this is for individual men and women who experience physical pain and emotional hurt. In the midst of all, it all, every single one of us has intellectual questions. Why do evil and suffering exist? Where is God in the middle of suffering? How can I suffer well? When will my suffering end? How can God be good and allow so much evil in the world? How can God be gracious and ordain such suffering in my life? These are real Questions that we all wrestle with. You do, I do. We wrestle with these questions. And the world is full of insufficient answers to those questions. Atheism says God and evil do not exist. If there's so much evil and suffering in the world, the atheist will say, then there's no way there can be a God over the world. Noted atheist Andrew Weisberger wrote, None can account for the tremendous account of suffering in a world in which an allegedly omnipotent, omniscient, and holy good God reigns. The conclusion to which we are drawn, therefore, is that the existence of, of such a God is implausible. Even C.S. Lewis, talking about his life before he became a Christian, said, Not many years ago, when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, Why do you not believe in God? My reply would have run something like this. Look at the universe we live in. 
History is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. But all civilizations pass away, and even while they remain, inflict peculiar sufferings of their own. Every race that comes into being in any part of the universe is doomed. For the universe, they tell us, is running down. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. So that's atheism's answer. God and evil don't exist. We're going to explore these more later. I just want to browse through them now. Christian science, evil is illusory. New age, evil is a result of ignorance. Dualism, good and evil are two forces, equal in power and opposite in purpose. Kind of like a Star Wars thing, good and theme, good and evil fighting each other. Fatalism, blind fate determines the depth of evil in our lives and the world. We're just products of destiny. Process theism says God's power is always evolving. He's limited in his ability to prevent evil. So this is Rabbi Harold Kushner who wrote the bestseller When Bad Things Happen to Good People and said, It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. God's power is limited. That's why we have evil and suffering. Or open deism that says God's knowledge is always increasing. Because he has limited information, he sometimes makes errors in judgment. Clark Pinnock, noted open theist, wrote decisions not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known even by God. They are potential, yet to be realized, but not yet actual. God can predict a great deal of what we will choose to do, but not all of it, because some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. The God of the the Bible displays an openness to the future that the traditional view of omniscience simply cannot accommodate. In other words, God's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. But because he doesn't have all knowledge, then sometimes things just go wrong. My aim tonight is to show you that every single one of those are insufficient answers. And they leave us empty with an intense longing for something else. We don't want thoughts from men. We need truth from God. We want truth from God in a world of suffering around us. And so we come to the word before us. And the Bible addresses suffering honestly. You got psalmists crying out for answers. You got the Bible addresses suffering effectively. I love Psalm 119.92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Did you hear that? God's law, God's word keeps us from perishing in our affliction. Martin Niemöller, a German pastor who was spent years in Dachau, a Nazi concentration camp that I visited a couple years ago. He talked about the Bible and he said, what did this book mean to me during those long and weary years of solitary confinement? And then for the last four years at Dachau, the word of God was simply everything to me. Comfort and strength, guidance and hope, master of my days and companion of my nights, the bread which kept me from starvation and the water of life that refreshed my soul. The Bible addresses suffering effectively. The Bible addresses suffering theologically. Meaning, the Bible addresses suffering from a God-centered point of view. Everything tonight revolves around the character of God. So the classic argument against God's existence in light of evil and suffering in the world goes all the way back to the 4th century Epicurus who said either God wants to abolish evil and he can't, or he can but he doesn't want to, or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to but can't, he is impotent not powerful. If he can and does not want to, he is wicked. He's not good. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil, then how comes evil into the world? Now, those questions are deeply theological. Does God exist? If he does, how good is God? How good is he? Is he loving or is he malicious? How good is God and how great is God? Is he all-knowing? Is he all-powerful? And the Bible addresses every one of those questions. 
Now, at the same time, the Bible addresses suffering mysteriously. The last thing I want to do tonight is to claim that there are easy answers to the suffering that you and I experience. There's mystery here. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. J. Rodden Williams said, Because all Christians relate to God who is ultimately beyond our comprehension, there will inevitably be some element of mystery or transcendence that cannot be reduced to human understanding. Nonetheless, within these limits, the theological effort must be carried on. Now, I want to make sure to be clear about what I mean by mystery. I don't mean contradiction. The Bible's not filled with contradictions that are untrue. I'm not talking about paradox either, something that appears to be a contradiction, but when you look at it closer, it's, it's true. Or an antinomy, it's got definition there. When I say mystery, I'm talking about an assumed truth which the human mind cannot comprehend, but which we accept by faith. Not a contradiction, not mere paradoxes or antinomies, but mysteries. John Calvin said, man with all his shrewdness is as stupid about understanding by himself the mysteries of God as a donkey is incapable of understanding musical harmony. Well said, John. So, with that basis, here's the journey ahead of us. We want to explore suffering in all of Scripture. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to cover 75 key texts in the Old Testament. Split up these sections, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament, book of the law, historical books, Psalms and wisdom literature, then we'll close the Old Testament with the prophets. So we're going to go from Genesis straight to Malachi. Then we'll pick up the New Testament with the Gospels, move into Acts, then I've grouped the Pauline letters together, so we'll go a little bit out of the order, out of order in the Bible there. Well, then we'll look at the general letters written by Peter and James and John and Jude and whoever in the world wrote the book of Hebrews. And then we're gonna, so we're gonna, we're gonna browse through 75 texts. We're gonna fly through them. And my goal, my goal tonight was to say, okay, if people are gonna walk away knowing what the Bible says about suffering, what are 75 key texts for understanding that? We're going to browse through them all, and then we're going to come to five foundational conclusions at the end of our time. I cannot wait to get to these, because these are rocks for you to stand on in the midst of a shifting suffering world. These are rock-solid truths that do strengthen and sustain and satisfy in the middle of suffering, but they won't make sense until we've gone through all of Scripture. Now, in all of this, we want to exalt Christ tonight. Good Friday is the perfect night to study this topic. The cross of Christ is the center of all scripture and all history. Everything points to the cross. And follow this, the cross of Christ is the key to understanding all suffering. If we want to discover the mystery of suffering, then we must start by, mis- by beholding the majesty of the cross. A right understanding of the cross leads to a right understanding of suffering. A wrong understanding or an incomplete understanding of the cross leads to a very confused understanding of suffering. I want to show you tonight how everything in all history, including suffering, was planned. I want to show you how suffering was planned for Good Friday. The reason we have suffering in the world has everything to do with Good Friday. Everything in all history, including Suffering was planned for Good Friday and ultimately points to Good Friday. Everything before the cross points forward to it. Everything since the cross points back to it. Everything that will last was purchased on it. And everything that matters hinges on the cross. The cross is the key to understanding suffering. So we want to exalt Christ and the cross and all of Scripture. And as we do, we want to examine our hearts. We want to ask some questions tonight. First and fundamental, we want to ask this question. Have I been saved? There is no more important question for any one of us to ask tonight than that. I want to ask 50,000 different people tonight. Have you been saved? I'm praying that God will do a work in many hearts tonight to save you from 
everlasting suffering. Midway through this passage in 2 Thessalonians, the Bible talks about when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I want you to see Revelation 20. There's coming a day when the book of life will be open before God in heaven. And if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Religious games will not matter on that day. Nominal belief will not matter on that day. Those who played religious games and settled for nominal belief, many of whom thought they were Christians, will be cast into eternal, everlasting suffering. And I, I'm praying that God will wake up some hearts tonight to be delivered from everlasting suffering. For that matter, nominal belief won't stay, sustain you in earthly suffering either. Randy Alcorn said a nominal Christian often discovers in suffering that his faith has been in his church, denomination, or family traditions, but not Christ. As he faces evil and suffering, he may lose his faith. But that's actually a good thing. I have sympathy for people who lose their faith, faith, but any faith lost in suffering wasn't a faith worth keeping anyway. The biblical reality is only those who endured in faith until the end will be saved. Colossians 1. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Hebrews 3, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So let's, every one of us, examine our hearts and ask the question, have I been saved? And then let's, let's take it a step deeper and ask, am I prepared to suffer? Here's the deal. You and I know it's, it's in times of suffering that some of the worst theology comes out of people's mouths. People, people say some of the most, most untrue things in the midst of trial as they're grasping for something to, to comfort them. They're longing for explanations. People, I'm talking about Christians here, come to some very unbiblical conclusions and they end up trying to stand on sinking sand. Now what makes that difficult is that in the middle of suffering, that's usually not the best time to correct theology. And someone's weeping over the loss of a loved one and they say something that's totally unbiblical. That's not usually the time to pull out a sermon on suffering. And so part of my purpose tonight is to prepare you to suffer. I want to give you rock solid truth to stand on so you don't go grasping for sinking sand when tragedy comes. D.A. Carson said, we, we do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy if by that point our beliefs, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. That's what I want to avoid for you. At the same time, I know, no matter how much we talk about, think about suffering, or how to respond in the middle of suffering, nothing will completely com- prepare us for the shock that comes when Suffering hits. When you're sitting at your desk or in a restaurant, or you're driving home in your car and you get a call that something ha- has happened to your spouse or one of your children. When you're shaving in the morning and after your quiet time with God and you feel a lump in your neck. When you leave a business trip or maybe even a mission trip and something happens to your family back home. And in an instant, the world around you turned upside down. None of it makes sense. That's like jumping into a bitterly cold body of water. You can brace yourself all day long for the experience. But when you actually jump in, the shock to your system just snatches your breath away. 
But what I want to do tonight is help you be as ready as possible when you get that phone call or you feel that lump or you witness that scene that you never could have imagined. I want you to be prepared in that moment to stand on biblical foundations, gospel foundations. Piper said, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians and wimpy Christians will not survive the days ahead. Am I prepared to suffer and am I prepared, am I ready to die? Ultimately, ultimately, that's my goal tonight. I want to feed you God's word. In such a way that it lodges so deeply in your heart that you are ready to die. That you tr can truly say from the depth of your being, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a weird way to live. That perspective is very radical in this world, but it's biblical. Carson said, whatever the church does, it should prepare its members to face death and meet God. So we want to examine our hearts, ask these questions. We want to equip one another like we've talked about. Just like Paul in Acts 14, as soon as the early Christians... Lystra and Iconium and Antioch came to Christ. Paul told them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We want to equip one another tonight to stand firm in the word and to spread the gospel in the world. To say with Paul in Acts 20, 24, I don't count my life worth anything to me. If only I finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Howard Guinness asked, and this is what I want to ask. 50,000 people, where are the men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death, who will lose their lives for Christ, flinging them away for love of Him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in this service? I want to propose to you tonight that that call is not just for super-Christians. That call is for every single follower of Jesus Christ. So tonight we want to examine our hearts, equip one another, so that in the end we embrace suffering in our lives, in our families, in our churches. Not because it's easy, but because suffering is worth it. I want you to see that suffering is worth it to experience the sufficiency of Christ in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12. Suffering is worth it to share the sufferings of Christ on this earth. Philippians 3, Colossians 1. We're going to look at all these texts later. Suffering is worth it to show the supremacy of Christ to all nations. Matthew 24, and then one of my favorite quotes from C.T. Studd, the wealthy Englishman who said, sold all that he had to go to China and then to India. Then when it was time to retire, he threw retirement aside and spent his last days in Africa until he died. He roused the church to action on behalf of people who'd never heard the gospel. And he said, believing the further delay would be sinful. Some of God's insignificance and nobodies in particular, but trusting in our omnipotent God, have decided on certain simple lines, according to the book of God, to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. Too long we've been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear, before the whole world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him. We will live and we will die for Him. And we will do it with His joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man and when we come to this position the battle is already won and the end of the glorious campaign in sight we will have the real holiness of God not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts we will have a masculine holiness one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ that's what we're after suffering is worth it to show the supremacy of Christ to the nations and suffering is worth it to experience the satisfaction of Christ for all of eternity we're going to see tonight, rejoice in suffering, rejoice in suffering, rejoice in suffering. 
I'm praying that we would walk away tonight, 50,000 of us saying, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That we would say together with Paul in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Creation has been subject to frustration, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its present bondage of decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And he goes on and talks about, we know, we know this first. We're going to talk about God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the likeness of his son. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, brothers and sisters, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that can Condemns Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and at this moment is interceding for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever, ever, ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's go out of here tonight. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.